2: I don't know what that means.
1: It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.
3: There's plenty to celebrate in March and expect Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
4: Hey there, history fans! We're taking a break for the next two weeks so that I can move across country. But don't worry, we've got plenty of classic shows to tide you over. Please enjoy these flashback episodes from the TDI HC Vault.
2: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson, and it's August 25th. Today in 1835, a bizarre hoax started in a newspaper. So an announcement ran in the New York Sun on Friday, August 21st of 1835 just a few days before what we're talking about, this announcement read, quote, we have just learnt from an eminent publisher in this city that Sir John Herschel at the Cape of Good Hope has made some astronomical discoveries of the most wonderful description by means of an immense telescope of an entirely new principle. This was very exciting. Sir John Herschel was a famous name in the world of astronomy. He was the nephew of Caroline Herschel and the son of William Herschel, and this telescope promised to be extremely fancy. So people got excited about what news was going to follow in the newspaper. A front page article ran on August 25th, also in the New York Sun, which was the paper that ran all of these. It was purportedly written by John Herschel's assistant, Dr. Andrew Grant. And Dr. Grant talked about this amazing and enormous telescope that could see all kinds of detail all the way on the moon, This telescope was reportedly 24 feet or about 7.3 meters in diameter. So it was huge. And it suggested there was a whole civilization on the moon. More articles followed. This was a six-part series. And the next part was basically a travelogue about going to the Cape of Good Hope and setting up this incredible telescope that they were going to use to look at the moon. What followed was all kinds of detail about what was on the moon. There were lunar forests and flowers and bodies of water and all kinds of bizarre creatures. These included goat-like monsters, water birds, some kind of lunar beavers that made their own huts instead of building dams in the water. There were palm trees. There were melon trees. There were miniature zebras. It went on and on. It was really like somebody just free-associated a bunch of really bizarre plant and animal descriptions and then later on also buildings. The fourth installment featured these humanoid creatures with bat wings and faces that were, quote, a slight improvement upon that of the large orangutan, except it was spelled orangutang. The sixth and last entry in the New York Sun's lunar series was printed on Monday... August 31st of 1835. It included a very dramatic story about this telescope catching fire. And then once the telescope was fixed, the moon had moved out of observable position so they couldn't see it anymore. Once the moon was ready to be observed again, Herschel had moved on to some other project. So that is why that was the end of the story. Other newspapers picked up this whole story, and there was a lot of talk about how exciting all these discoveries were. There was some discussion at the beginning about whether this was valid at all. I mean, people had never seen the surface of the moon with that much detail. It maybe was believable that there was all kinds of bizarre life up there. The fact that Herschel really had gone on a research trip to South Africa and really had built a telescope at the Cape of Good Hope all helped with the believability of this whole bizarre story. People were like, oh, I know he really did that, so this must really be what he saw through it. But by the fourth installment, a lot of people were starting to think this seemed a little bit far-fetched. More and more people came to the conclusion that this was some codswallop with a side, of bull roar, was not uh, believable to a lot of people by the end of it. Sometime later, British journalist Richard Adams Locke confessed to writing this whole thing, saying that he didn't mean it to be a hoax. He meant it as satire. Apparently, Herschel heard about this whole thing late in 1835. At first, he thought it was funny. Although for many years after that, people kept asking him about it and he gradually thought it was less funny and got tired of those questions. You can learn more about this whole bizarre episode in the March 30th and April 1st, 2015 installments of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get podcasts. Tomorrow we'll have an 18th century declaration that's probably not the one you thought of.
3: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was August 25, 1925. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a labor union organized by the Black employees of the Pullman Company, had its first meeting. George Mortimer Pullman founded the Pullman Company in 1867, during the Reconstruction era after the emancipation of enslaved Black people in the South. The Pullman Company manufactured railroad cars. Pullman's big claim to fame was the sleeping car, or passenger rail cars that have beds for travelers to make overnight trips more comfortable. Railroad lines leased Pullman cars, which were really popular in the US from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. The Pullman company employed black maids and porters, many of whom were formerly enslaved in the beginning of the company's history. Pullman knew that many Black people needed work badly and would take low wages. The work that the Porters did on Pullman cars is what really made the experience top quality. Porters prepared beds for passengers at night and made them up in the morning. They served food and drinks to passengers. They cared for passengers when they were sick. And they made sure passengers were safe on their trips. Supporters were respected in their communities. They got to travel around the country. And after tips, they were paid better than a lot of Black people in other professions. But their hours were long, and the work was often thankless. They had to work 400 hours or travel 11,000 miles in a month to earn full pay. And they were still paid a lot less than white people in other professions at the Pullman Company. Porters did not have any job security, and they had to pay for their own food, lodging, and uniforms. If passengers took items from their cars, then their pay was docked. They did not get much sleep at night since they worked such long days, and even when they did, they had to sleep on couches in the smoking car. And the conditions of their work maintained the master-servant relationship between Black and white people that was perpetuated under slavery— Porters were often called George, regardless of their real names, presumably because of the old practice of slaves being named after their masters, and the Pullman founder's name was George. Unhappy with these conditions and how they faced punishment if they brought these issues up to the company, the porters tried to organize. After a few attempts to unionize from 1909 to 1913, The Pullman Company itself decided to create the Pullman-Porters Benefit Association in 1915. Five years later, the company also established the Employee Representation Plan, which was funded through employee salaries. But those initiatives did not completely address the porters' issues. So a small group of Pullman porters approached labor movement leader A. Philip Randolph for help in starting a union. Randolph was reluctant to help them initially, but he warmed up to the idea and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters had its first meeting on August 25, 1925. The union published its first demands in The Messenger, a magazine that Randolph founded. It called for abolishing tipping, pay raises, pension increases, and better rest breaks. The Pullman Company used various tactics to disrupt the Union's efforts, like using spies, firing porters involved in the Union, intimidating people interested in joining, and putting propaganda in media. So the Union remained secretive, and the porters' wives were instrumental in keeping the Union alive by fundraising and attending meetings when porters could not be present. It took a while for the union to gain traction. But in 1937, two years after the National Relations Labor Act was enacted, the Pullman Company signed a labor agreement with the Brotherhood. The Porter's minimum salary was increased and working conditions improved. In 1947, the Pullman Company let go of the sleeping car business. As the railroad industry declined in the 1950s and 1960s, so did the number of porters and membership in the Brotherhood. Many porters were involved in the civil rights movement as well. In 1978, the Brotherhood merged with another union, the Brotherhood of railway, airline, steamship clerks, freight handlers, express, and station employees. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you would like to learn more about this topic, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The link to that episode is in the description. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.